0: Who has ever had a terrible boss? Uh, That's probably just about every single one of us have had a boss, Uh, someone who held authority over us, maybe a teacher, a coach, a team leader, a project manager, a homeowner's association enforcer, even a parent that has possessed that power or authority and not handled it particularly well. Now, now, coincidentally, perhaps the greatest indicator of our maturity is how we handle authority, power, and influence. H- how we respond when, when it dawns on us that we're the most powerful person in the room. In the classroom, in the boardroom, in the Zoom meeting, in the locker room, in the, in the living room. What, what we do when we realize that all eyes are looking at us. And here's how I know that this right here is true. For every single one of us, Christian or not, that there are few things that are more repulsive, that we all universally dislike, as when a leader or a boss or a politician or a parent leverages their influence for the benefit of themselves and simultaneously to the neglect of those for whom they are responsible. Now now fortunately for us, the opposite holds every bit as true, that there are few things as inspiring as a leader who says no to himself or no to herself in order to say yes to those for whom they're responsible. We just passed the all-star break in, in the NBA. You might not be an NBA fan, but this guy right here is, uh, This his name is Joel Embiid, and he's like the MVP favorite right now for the season. He's a center for the Philadelphia 76ers. And, and rather than keeping his all-star earnings, he gave away 100% of his all-star earnings to, to help homeless shelters in Philadelphia. Earlier on in the year, this is kind of par for the course for him, he paid the salaries for furloughed 76ers and arena employees because he knew that without fans, they weren't going to get a paycheck. When we see actions like this, like from Joel Embiid, we universally praise that. Even if you don't like basketball, again, even if you're not necessarily like even knowing who this guy is, you just hear that story and you're like, yeah, I like that. Now, conversely, when a politician cheats on their taxes, we about have a conniption. When a celebrity uses their influence to take advantage of people, we are outraged. Even worse, when a Christian leader, and and unfortunately there have been many of them, when a Christian leader uses their power to satisfy their sexual appetite, we are, and rightfully so, we're disgusted. We're we're angered. We're about to come out of our skin. But, But here's the deal. None of us actually know how we would respond until someone hands us the keys, the title, the crown, And and, and it's this theme that we're going to be exploring today in the life of David. Just in case you're new around here, today we are entering into part four of this five-part series, uh, where again we're exploring the life of David. This was is ancient Israel's second king, but undeniably Israel's greatest king. If you missed any of those first three parts of the series, have no fear—you can get yourself caught up at grumlaw.com/messages, or per usual, you can find us under Grumlaw Church wherever it is that you happen to grab your podcasts. Now, a little bit of background here on David. Uh, When he was just a teenager, Samuel, who is a prophet of God, a prophet is somebody who spoke on behalf of God, he he shows up on David's doorstep. Actually, he shows up on Jesse's doorstep, who is the father of David, and and he explains to Jesse that he is on a secret mission. Samuel was there at, at David's house to anoint the next king of Israel, which is precisely why this was a secret mission, because Israel already had a king who went by the name of, come on, help me out, that's right, Saul. So it's a secret mission because if Saul found out that Samuel was about to anoint the next king, he would have been none too pleased. So, so Samuel, he gathers up the entire household of Jesse and, and nobody, keep in mind, has any idea what's going on. And, and he figures that once all of Jesse's sons, and there were eight of them, are, are standing in front of them, that God would kind of tip his hat. He'd kind of like point, he'd do something. he gives give some sort of nudge to inform Samuel who was supposed to become the next king. And so it says when they arrived Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought surely this is the Lord's anointed that this was the firstborn he was tall he was handsome it just like seemed obvious that this would probably be the guy that God would choose but the Lord said to Samuel don't judge by his appearance or height for I have rejected him the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them people judge by outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. Read that to yourself right now. But the Lord looks at the heart. And, and see, here's the thing. Every single one of us do this. The, the, the first thing that we do, Christian or not, when we meet someone is we consider their appearance. We, we, we kind of take a quick mental inventory of what the individual looks like and, and whether it's intentional or not, we kind of make these snap judgments. But, but God he operates much differently. God declares it's what's in a man that makes a man. How about that ladies? God is doling out free dating advice. Don't be fooled by his outward appearance. And men, it's what's in a woman that makes a woman. So never mind, you're hopeless. So, so this goes on for seven of Jesse's sons. And now Samuel is kind of thinking to himself, like, okay, did I miss the cue from God? God was kind of supposed to tip his hat, like when the right son stepped in front of me. And so he sort of reluctantly asks Samuel, he says, are, are these all the sons you have? Did, did we miss anyone? Because I know that you still have no idea what I'm doing here, but I was supposed to get like the God nod. Like one of your boys, I was supposed to get the nudge and I'm coming up completely empty. And normally God speaks pretty clearly to me. So is, is there anyone else? And, and Jesse replies, well, they're still the youngest, but, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. I mean, yeah, there's still one more son, but He's kind of the runt of the litter. I assure you, if you're looking for something special among my family, something special among my boys, my youngest, David, he definitely isn't it. And Samuel says, send for him at once. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. And and, and so now there's all this mumbling going on among Jesse and his sons. And they're all thinking to themselves, like, why in the heck does this very famous prophet, everybody knew who Samuel was, why does he want to see David? Doesn't he know David is the youngest? Like, David's the runt? So so David finally shows up, and he's all dirty and all smelly because he's been hanging out with sheep. And immediately, Samuel gets that cue that he's been looking for from God, that the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. That This is the one, anoint David. And and then about one of the strangest things that you could ever imagine happens, Samuel walks on right over to David, he pours oil on his head, he gives him a blessing, and then he just leaves. And and keep in mind, uh, everybody in the house of Jesse, they still have no idea why he is there. Can you even imagine that the closest comparison that I could come up with. This would be like me showing up randomly to your house one day, completely uninvited. And I tell you upon my arrival, you need to line all of your children up. So two, three, four kids lined up in front of me. And then out of nowhere, I just kind of size them up. I walk into your kitchen, I get some cooking oil, dump it on one of their heads. I say a quick prayer and then I waltz right back out the door. You'd be like, yeah, I think we're gonna check out another church on Sunday. But ever since David was a teenager, he knew that God had a special purpose for his life. In about 18 to 24 months, somewhere in that time frame, after this whole Samuel showing up on your doorstep and pouring oil on your head incident, David would end up killing Goliath at just 15 years young. And just like that, as we've already covered in this series, David, he becomes an overnight sensation. And about, for about seven years, all goes really, really well. And then as we saw last week, David falls out of favor from King Saul, not because of his own doing, but, but Saul's starting to put the pieces together that David is going to be the next king and he wants to become and still be king. So he's like, eh, I'm kind of intimidated by this guy. And so he starts chasing David around. David becomes a fugitive, running from both the Philistines as well as King Saul. Now, now, this fugitive time, it would last for eight years. That This is not a short amount of time. But, but all the while, David knew that God had a special purpose for his life. That, that, that God had destined him for greatness. That, that he was being held in God's treasure pouch. And, and it's during those fugitive years that David would learn many, many lessons Many of those lessons that would prepare him to be the greatest king of Israel. But but perhaps no lesson was more important than this is not about me. With all the authority, with all the power, it's still not about me. No, no, no. It's all about God's will, God's way in God's time. And as I mentioned in part one, this account of the life of David is one of the most detailed narrative accounts in all of ancient literature. And one of the incredible details that were offered is during these fugitive years, when Saul is hunting David down like a wounded whitetail, David actually has two different opportunities to kill King Saul and end this whole escapade. Once and for all, he could kill Saul. And at that moment, he would know. I mean, he knew for certain that all of Israel would name him king, but he chooses not to. There's this one occasion in particular where David and his men, that they're hiding in the back of a cave. And they're kind of waiting for Saul and his men to kind of pass on by the cave and then they'll slip out and go to their next hiding spot. You've done this probably you know, when you were a kid and you're playing hide and go seek and your sister or your brother walks past your hiding spot. I mean, they have no idea you're there. You're undetected and you kind of slip out of that spot and you go to another spot that they've already checked. This is exactly what is happening with David. David and his men are far back in the cave and as they're waiting for Saul and his men to pass by, Saul's men go by, but then there is Saul and he decides that he has to use the restroom. And so there he is at the mouth of the cave and he is completely vulnerable. He is in the most vulnerable position imaginable, relieving himself. And David's men, they're about to lose their mind. They're going, David, are you serious? God right now is handing you Saul on a silver platter. Go, they're like pushing, they're like, go kill him. But David, he responds by saying, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the king. I should not attack the Lord's anointed one for the Lord himself has chosen him. David's going, God himself chose Saul to be the first king of Israel. God's will, God's way, in God's time. I refuse to disrupt the proper order of things. I refuse to take matters into my own hands. And then in one of the most like baller power play moments in all of human history, after Saul's finished his business and he puts back on his armor, he grabs his sword and kind of continues on his way. While he's once he's a safe distance away, David comes rolling out of the cave and he shouts at Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked back around, David bowed low before him. And in this moment, it's not lost on Saul or any of his men what just happened. Saul immediately puts it together that David could have just ended all of this, but he chose not to. That David was refusing to repay evil for evil. That that, that even though Saul is hunting David down, David refused to lay a hand on Saul. God's will, God's way, in God's time. Then there's the second occasion where, where Saul and his men, they're, they're camped out in the desert. And, and David and a couple of his buddies, a couple of his men decide to sneak right into the middle of their camp during the night. When, when, when Saul and all of his soldiers are, are fast asleep and it actually works. I mean, they make it right to Saul, the king himself completely undetected while he is fast asleep. And get this, Saul's own spear is stuck in the ground right next to where he's sleeping. And again, David's buddies are like, David, Don't blow this opportunity. God clearly is giving you Saul right now. He wants you to take advantage of this situation. Drive that spear into Saul's body and kill him. You have every right to do this. He's hunting you down. You ought to hunt him down. In fact, one of the guys that's actually with David, he offers to kill Saul for David. He's like, I know you're probably not gonna do this because of your whole God's will, God's way, and God's time thing, but let me do it. I will be happy to kill him. Then your conscience will be clear. But again, David replies, no, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? In other words, I refuse to violate the will of God in order to gain the blessing of God. I refuse to violate the will of God in order to gain the blessing of God. I will not violate the will of God in order to get what I deserve. This is not about me. But but in yet another kind of baller power play move, David does snatch up the spear. He grabs Saul's water jug. And, And once they're a safe distance away, David yells down to the sleeping soldiers and specifically Abner, who is Saul's bodyguard. He says, wake up, Abner, wake up. Who is it? And you just imagine Abner kind of like awaking from his sleep. He has no idea what's going on. Will Abner, you're a great man, aren't you? David taunted. Where in all Israel is there anyone as mighty? So why haven't you guarded your master, the king, when someone came to kill him? This isn't good at all. I swear by the Lord that you and your men deserve to die because you failed to protect your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around. Where where are the king's spear and the jug of water that were beside his head? And they're looking around like, yeah, actually, that's a good point. Where where is his spear? Where is his jug of water? And David's up on a hill going, yoo-hoo. David refused to replace what God had put in place. God's will, God's way, in God's time. Well, eventually, and I am skipping over a lot here this morning. encourage you to read this for yourself. I mean, we could spend an entire year on the life of David. Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in battle with the Philistines. These are the last two men that stood in David's way to the throne to be the sole king of Israel. And almost immediately, the tribe of Judah, there were 12 twa- tribes in all of Israel, and one of those tribes being Judah, they declared David king. But, but another one of Saul's sons, Ishbosheth, he instead declares himself king. And the other 11 tribes, they actually side with Ishbosheth. So, so get this: for seven more years. And keep in mind, again, he had already been a fugitive for eight years, that there's this conflict between David and Ishbosheth regarding who is the true king of Israel. But, but throughout these seven years, David basically tries to just stay out of the way, because he has this unwavering faith that God is in control. God's will, God's way in God's time. Now after seven years, Ishbosheth is—he's eventually murdered, actually, by two brothers. What while he sleeps in his own house, uh, these two brothers that murdered Ishbosheth—they think that they're doing David a favor. Which, by the way, this is a whole other story. Again, read this stuff for yourself. Uh, but David—he's not too pleased about this. He, he's not excited that these brothers decided to take matters into their own hands, and so they actually show up to David uh, with Ishbosheth's head, and they're, they're expecting to get some sort of reward. But rather than being pleased, again, David is quite angry that they took matters into their own hands, and he actually has those two brothers put to death. But all that being said, the throne is finally David's. The the, the other 11 tribes, they willingly fall into line and they embrace David as their king. And and watch what happens next. I mean, he's finally the king. This gives us an incredible glimpse into the mind and, and the posture of David as the king of Israel. All the elders of of all 12 tribes of Israel, they have gathered at Hebron, the the holy city in in ancient Israel, to anoint David as their next king. I mean, finally, he is the king. He holds the power. He holds all the authority after 15 years. So so there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel. Now, Now, if you've ever read, this for yourself, I can almost guarantee that you just breezed right past this and you didn't even give it a second thought. But but it's in this moment right here that David shows his true greatness, that he demonstrates his humility. Because at this exact moment, David holds all the power. He has all the cards. He is the law. He is the most powerful person in the room. He is the most powerful person in all of Israel. And before him stand countless men who opposed him for the better part of 15 years. And in this moment, he displays extraordinary maturity and wisdom that he would have not possessed had it not been for that time that he spent in the wilderness during those fugitive years. Right here again, it tells us he makes a covenant. A covenant? A contract in agreement with the people? This is so fascinating because it's completely unnecessary. He now was the law. So so why in this moment would you sacrifice any of that power? Why would David do this? And, And there's three words right here that tell the entire story, before the Lord. See, in this moment, when David finally held all of the power, all of the authority, he willingly submitted himself to God's law and God's authority. In other words, he was communicating to the entire nation of Israel, I am a king, but I am not the king. I might have all the power, you might think I have all the authority, but no, 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 I am not the king. As we said in part one, Throughout David's life, through, through, through all of his ups, through all of his downs, David never confused himself with the king of Israel. Time and time again, he allowed himself to be broken over and by the law of God. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel and they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years in all. David waited 15 years, 15 years to receive what God had promised him. And, and during that time, he, he learned a lot of lessons that would make him Israel's greatest king. He, he learned that leadership is stewardship, that those in authority are accountable. And I think that every single one of us, again, whether you're a Christian or not, no matter where you find yourself in this whole faith journey, I think we can all agree that this story of David is inspiring. Because as I said on the front end, when we see this type of leadership, when a leader says no to themselves for the benefit of those whom they hold influence over, it's inspiring. But that, that's not really enough to just be inspired, especially if you're watching right now, if you're listening right now, and you call yourself a follower of Jesus. This type of greatness, if you call yourself a Jesus follower, is actually required of us. And I say that because about a thousand years later, 20 miles north of Hebron, in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus himself, God in the flesh, He would model for all of us just how far this goes. It's right before the Passover celebration, which was an annual celebration for the Jewish people commemorating the time when God led Israel out from Egyptian slavery. And Jesus in this moment, he's about to share his final meal with his closest friends. And it's really just hours away from Jesus being arrested and eventually crucified, and the text tells us these very specific words. It says, Jesus knew, he knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and everyone, and that he had come from God and would return to God. Jesus is fully aware that he holds all the power, that he has the keys, L- literally Everything is under his authority. He holds the whole world in his hands and he knows it. And right here, while yes, what happens next might inspire us, again, if you call yourself a Jesus follower, we're about to be shown what is required of us. What do you do when you're in charge? What do you do when you're the most powerful, influential person in the room? What do you do when you hold the whole world in your hands? So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist. And now his closest friends, they're putting together what Jesus is about to do, and it is too much for them to handle. They know Jesus is the Son of God that they've seen what Jesus can do with those hands. And so they begin pleading with Jesus, seriously, Jesus, don't do this. We're not worthy. We can't let you do what it seems like you're about to do. He poured water into a basin, and then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around them. And so often, we if you grew up in church, we paint this picture here of this beautiful moment where everybody's smiling. They are so uncomfortable. I mean, they can hardly take it. Here kneels before them, the son of God, God in the flesh, and he's washing their nasty, gross, smelly feet. And after he finished washing their feet, he puts back on his robe, a robe reserved for a rabbi, for a teacher, and he sits back down at the table and perhaps, I don't know, grins because he has just preached the most powerful message imaginable without uttering a word. And then he looks right at his disciples and he says these words, and I'm so glad that he did because I think these words are for us. He delivers these words to the generations of Jesus followers that were to come, including me and including you. He says, and since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do, 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 do as I have done to you. If you ever think you're too good to wash the feet of those around you, Remember back to this moment when I washed your nasty, gross feet. If I, as God in the flesh, am not too good to wash your feet, you are not too good to wash each other's feet. And then just hours later, Jesus would put an exclamation point on all of this when he would give himself on a cross for you, for all of us. So, In those moments when you think you're something, in those moments when you think you're somebody, when you're handed the keys, when you're shown the corner office, when you are given the hosting privileges on Zoom, (laughs) when you're handed the crown, as you gain more influence, as you gain more power, just use that as a reminder to find more feet to wash. Because perhaps the greatest indicator of our maturity, is how we handle authority, power, and influence. And, And here's what I know of every single one of us, Christian or not, to some level, every single one of us, we've been handed the keys. To someone, you wear the crown. You're a father, you're a mother, you're a husband, you're a wife, you're a fiance, you're a manager, you're a team leader, you're an owner, you're a captain, you're a coach, you're a big brother, you're a big sister, you're an admin. And and no matter where you hold that authority, we would do well to follow the example that David learned the hard way and that Jesus modeled for every single one of us. That, That you leverage your authority for the benefit of those under your authority. That The minute it dawns on you that you have any power, any influence, any authority, you use that as a trigger to start washing some feet. If you're not a Christian, you'd be wise to embrace this. If you are a Jesus follower, this isn't optional. It is central to what it means to actually follow Jesus. Because after all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, can we even imagine what would happen if just the Jesus followers here at Grumlaw got this right? Imagine if we all actually led like this. Once upon a time, that type of selflessness changed the world. And I happen to think it could again. Leverage your authority for the benefit of those under your authority. After all, that is precisely what your Savior did for you.